Great to see everyone. A lot of you know what an awesome hunter I am. <laughs> and I got to tell you that Pastor Tim went out this last week. And he went out, I, I think there were maybe about four of them, bear hunting. And the first day he was there, within the first four hours, he shot a bear. <laughs> and I would tell you that story, but I don't want to. All right? <laughs> It's a boring story. You don't want to hear it, and I don't want to tell it, all right? Can you believe that? Sometimes life just doesn't work out the way you plan or the way you think it would be or the way you want it to happen. And, of course, the worst way that plays out in our life is with sin. I mean, think about it. Sometimes, you know, if we're tuned into God and we're a believer we totally understand that God has blessed us, that we don't deserve anything that we have, and he's given us a good life, and we live in a great country, and, you know, all these things, blessing, blessing, blessing. And then sometimes we'll realize that we've sinned against God. Or, or maybe it's something that we struggle with, and, and then we fall to temptation. Or maybe it's some habitual thing that we've become calloused over and every once in a while it sort of opens up like a raw wound. How, how can we love God, follow God, receive all God's blessings and then betray God with sin, rebel against God with sin, go against God with sin? Well, we all do that to some extent. And the, and the bigger question really is, if we do that, then how do we move forward? If that happens to us, because we have guilt, shame, I mean, how do we move forward with our relationship with God? I mean, sometimes our, our sin could just be stunning. It's just like, you got to be kidding me. What's next? How do I move forward? Well, that's what we're going to learn in the life of David this week. We left off, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we ended in chapter 7, David has been anointed king of all Israel. God makes a special promise, a covenant with David called the Davidic covenant, that from him all the world will be saved from their sin, essentially, and then the rest of chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 is just a highlight reel of everything that David did right. I mean, he conquers the enemies of God. He keeps his promises, like his promise to Jonathan. He finds an heir, a, a, a son named Mephibosheth, and he takes care of him. And basically, he rules well. I mean, it all goes great, but then David, a man after God's own heart, sins like the rest of us. And so we see that play out in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and uh, David's about 50 years old, and he falls into temptation. And it's a little bit of a reminder, we don't outgrow temptation I mean, I think a lot of guys think when they're tempted sexually, they'll think, well, you know, 
they sort of give in to all that, but they think, well, someday I'll be with somebody, someday I'll be married, and I'm not going to be tempted in the same way, and, and a lot of times they are, most of the time. Or they'll think, you know, I'm going to reach a certain age, and then it's not going to bother me anymore, and I'll be off of that, and that doesn't usually play out that way either. And then a lot of times, we'll, we'll find out from this story, that sometimes we're tempted because we've got time on our hands, because we don't keep busy. We'll notice in the first sentence as we look at our text today that, that David doesn't go out to war like he would normally do. And, and, and we don't know why we're not told. You know, he's, he's 50, maybe he's feeling his age a little bit. Let the young guys go. Maybe he's just gotten softer because he's now used to living in a palace, his home in Jerusalem. Or it could be that this battle with Ammon is not so far away and he thinks, hey, I can, I can manage the battle from Jerusalem. But here's how it goes. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbath. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. Red flag right there. When evening came, David arose. What's that mean? He's been in bed all day. When evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. That's not he's perving. That was normal back then. The house is sort of a deck. The roof of your house is common. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now he's perfect. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? It's almost like this person's trying to help David. Uh, you're asking about this one. Well, this is the daughter of Eliam. He, he's a warrior in your army. And, and this is the wife of Uriah, whom you know better. You know, Uriah, the guy that served you for 20, 30 years. He's one of your 30 mighty men, one of your elite soldiers who's been defending you with his life since you were on the run from Saul back in the day. Next verse, David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. And we're wondering why. why? That happened fast, didn't it? It's like just the brevity is, is just the author going, yeah, that's the way it is. It, bam, it happens. And remember, David's got at least seven wives and ten concubines. You know, why? Well, I think one of the reasons is because sexual temptation is always progressive. Sexuality is one of those things that when we give in or give in habitually to temptation, we're never satisfied. It's just more and more and more. Here, David, seven wives, ten concubines, and he wants more. It's progressive. And by the way, 
in any temptation, you know, on one side is this truth. All Christians, we're all susceptible and we all sin. We get that. And, and we should try not to fight against that and repent. On the flip side, God says there's never a temptation that we ever face that it's not possible for us to move beyond, conquer that temptation with God's help. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist. But with the, I'm not quoting here, I'm just, but with, just parts, but with temptation will provide an escape. God, if you're looking to God in temptation, he will always provide you with an exit ramp that you can take. But of course, we don't always do that. And David didn't do it, and now it's a scandal in the palace. David has slept with Uriah's wife, and now she's pregnant. Now, Uriah the Hittite, he's like a foreign-born mercenary, but he and probably his parents have converted to Judaism because he has a, a Hebrew name. But he's one of David's mighty men, one of the 30, an elite warrior, a Navy SEAL for David. And he's been with David all these years. And so David, he's got to cover up this sin, he thinks. So he sends a messenger out to Joab, who's out in the field fighting, and they're They've got a city, Ramah, under siege. And so they go, a messenger goes to Joab and says, send Uriah home. So Uriah goes back to Jerusalem. And then David has this all planned out. Have Uriah come and bring me a report on how the battle's going. And so Uriah does that, which may have felt weird to Uriah. He's an elite warrior, and they're treating him like a messenger. He's got to be going, why are you having me deliver messages? And so he meets with David, gives him the update on the battle, and then David's like, hey, appreciate you. You're a great guy, Uriah. You know what you need to do? You need some R&R. Why don't you go home, wash your feet? He, David sends a gift, you know, a fruit basket. You know, enjoy some food, and then enjoy your nice warm bed with your wife tonight. How about that? And she, Uriah walks out, and then, but the next day, David finds out he never went home that he slept at the entrance to David's palace. So David calls Uriah back in. He's like, what are you doing? Why, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, hey, Joab and the army of God, the army of Israel are camping in the fields. It's not right that I come home and just sort of take it easy and, and enjoy my wife. It, it, it it's not right. Here, Uriah has more integrity than David. We see this right here. And so David goes to plan B, and he decides, well, I'll get, I'll get Uriah drunk. So he says, hey, well, why don't you stay another day? And then he invites Uriah in. They party that night. He gets Uriah plastered. He thinks that's going to do the trick, because we all know, you know, the more chemical inducements we have, the more challenge to our moral convictions. But it doesn't work. Uriah, again, sleeps in the courtyard entrance of David's palace. And so David, you know, he, he's like, man, ever, you know, one thing is when we're in sin, 
It's really easy to get irritated with people who aren't in sin, right? You know, David's like, what? what's wrong with you, man? And so David resorts to plan C, and plan C is he writes out a message for his commander, Joab. He sends it by Uriah's own hand, and it's sealed with his seal. And in this message that Uriah delivers is really instructions for Joab to put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle and make sure that Uriah, Uriah dies. And that's exactly what happens. They put Uriah in the battle. This is a siege. They did, Joab has them do some things that really aren't safe, doesn't really make sense, and, and Uriah, Uriah dies. And so word comes back, Uriah's dead. Bathsheba mourns. After her mourning is over, David then takes her as his wife, and they have a son together. The, the twisted thing about all of this is in that culture, sometimes widows could be in a very difficult situation because they would have no means of support back then. This is 3,000 years ago. And so they could be a kinsman redeemer, which we saw in the book of Ruth, if you know about that. You know, that there's a way for a man, even if he had a wife, could take her in as a wife and provide for her and give her a place and give her security. And so David does that role. So in some twisted way, not only has David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, but now he's seen as the good guy that he would marry her and take her in to his home to provide for. It is messed up. And God notices. And so God sends Nathan, a prophet, to confront David. And Nathan and David have had interactions before. David knows who he is, respects him. And so Nathan comes to David. He gets an audience with the king. And when he's in talking to David, and sometimes the king would serve as, as the supreme justice you know, in the land and render judgments. And so Nathan goes there, and he tells him, hey, there are two men. Tells him a story. There are these two guys. One guy's rich. One guy's poor. The rich guy, he's got flocks and herds. I mean, he's wealthy, all kinds of animals. He's living the high life. But then, the high life. And then there's this other guy, a poor man, and he doesn't have any of that. He has one little lamb. That's all he has to his name. And he, all he, he and his family have to live on is they, they have this lamb. And this lamb is so precious to them that they treat it like a family pet. I mean, it sleeps in their bed the whole nine yards. And so then the rich guy receives a traveler, and in that culture, when you received a traveler, you'd put on a, a big meal for them. And so he receives a traveler, the rich guy does, but then instead of taking a lamb from his own flock, he goes and steals the poor man's pet lamb, has it butchered, and then serves it up for dinner. And David, the ex-shepherd boy, is enraged in this story. He, he's enraged at hearing this, and he's like, that guy, that rich guy, he deserves to die, but what he needs to do is pay back four times, but, and that's what the law required. But David's like, but he deserves death. And then this happens in verse seven. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, so now he's quoting God. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. 
It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise, raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Confronted. Caught red-handed. How, how can David sin like this, God's pointing out, and, and be what we know, God says, man after his own heart. Well, here's, here's how. It's all about how David responds to Nathan confronting him. He confesses and repents. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. He owns, he owns up to I have sinned. He doesn't try to make excuses. You know how we would be in that. Guys, you know, if we were confronted. Well, you know, I was minding my own business. I was taking a walk in the evening. I was just doing my own thing. I was at my own, you know, we would have all these excuses. Not with David. He says, I have sinned. Today you'd hear people going, yeah, you know, I know I have seven wives and ten concubines, but I just didn't feel like I was getting enough attention at home. You know what I mean? Now David says, I've sinned. I've sinned against God. No excuses. And I got to tell you, it's surprising to me. I've told you this before. It's surprising to me how many people Sin against God, it brings a train wreck into their lives, and then you're talking to them, they come in for counseling, you're trying to sort things out, but then they always minimize what they've done. You know, they've, they've committed some huge sin, but then it's, but they kind of say, you know, and they, they use words like this, you know, I, yeah, this and this and this and that. I know technically God says you're not supposed to do that. You know, I know, I know the Bible says that's wrong. But, you know, we all know we just live our lives. David doesn't do that. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. No excuses. He says, I've sinned before the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now, why does he say you shall not die? Because God's law required death for both of those offenses. You shall not die. But here, here's the thing, and it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around. God forgives, and when God forgives, that means you don't owe God anymore that you're forgiven. It's like your sin is removed from you. It's not counted against you anymore. 
somebody owes you. It's just like when we forgive. When we forgive somebody, that means, hey, you don't owe me anymore. I'm erasing the slate. I will absorb the debt, and you're free to go. That's forgiveness. God does that with David. But what's hard for us to wrap our minds around is David still suffers the consequences, what I call natural consequences, of his sin. You know, you have an affair with somebody, God can forgive you, but that doesn't mean your wife won't divorce you and your kids won't despise you, right? I mean, you live with that, but God can still forgive you. This consequences are brought to bear. They're set in motion. For example, the first thing is nine months later. Nine months later, the baby's born, and God says, this baby is going to die. And this upsets David. So he lies face down in the courtyard of his palace, and he's there all night long. We don't know how many days, but he's face down to the ground. He's fasting. He's praying for the baby's life that this wouldn't happen. And the, his servants are trying to feed David, but he refuses. And then finally it happens, and David sort of catches it. In verse 19 of chapter 12, it goes like this. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped and worshiped God. Then he came into his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? It's a rhetorical no. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And this last phrase is key because it leads us to a key doctrine that shows us the character of God as it relates to the destination of kids who die before they're old enough to know right and wrong or before we say the age of accountability. Because David's comforted saying, I'll go to him. It's not just I'll go to him like I'll die too. It's, no, this is comforting me. I'll go to him. I can move on with my life. I know I'll go to him. And so this is part of how we know that kids or the mentally challenged people who, who can't know right from wrong, how people, young children or mentally challenged who can't know right from wrong, how they go to heaven. Part of the argument to do that. And so I'm telling you that if you're a believer... And that if you've lost a young child, you will see that child again in heaven. If you've aborted a child, you'll see that child and be able to love that child in heaven. And some people say, well, 
boy, this is kind of roundabout way of getting to this. You know, why doesn't God just say that more plain, plainly, just straight out? And I believe that's because people would misuse that truth and do terrible things to kids. But that's another story. So David is forgiven, but because what David has done, we see these consequences in his life. And one huge thing is he's got major family dysfunction. Anybody being a, come from a family? I won't, don't, do not raise your hands. Just anybody come from a family with major dysfunction? Yeah, it happens. Well, David causes this. Remember, David's got multiple wives, but the law had already said that you shouldn't do that. One man for one woman for a lifetime is God's desire, God's plan. And God specifically said that the trouble with kings is they'll want to multiply wives and they should not do that. But at this point, God, here David has got a bunch of wives. And that was common in the culture, but God said don't do it. But David disobeyed, and that fact brought dysfunction into his family. And by the way, this is what always happens. Our sin hurts the people we love. We, we always think we can keep it separate, but our sin will end up being destruct, a destructive force for the people we love. When it's found out, you know, the way it affects us, all those things. And so here's what happens. There, here's the dysfunction. David's got all these wives and concubines, which are also wives, just not the favorite wives. Guys, you know how that is. You got the favorite wife. No, you don't. <laughs> and if you even laughed at that, you're in trouble if your wife is here. No. So there's the favorite wives and the concubines, and, and they're all having children. And so the oldest male child is named Amnon. He's the heir to the throne. He's the next king. He's the guy that's going to take over. But Amnon has a problem. He has fallen in love with his half-sister, Tamar. And he, he wants Tamar. He wants Tamar sexually. But Tamar's like, no way. You're my half-brother. This is against the law. Can't do it. And so Amnon comes up with a plan. He acts like he's sick. His dad comes to check on him, and he tells David, hey, yeah, I'm sick. If you would send Tamar, you know, your daughter to come, and if she would make me some food and feed me, I think I'd feel better. So that happens. Well, Tamar comes, prepares a meal for Amnon, but then as she's serving it, she says, he, he says, Amnon has everybody else leave the residence except for Tamar. And then he tells Tamar, hey, I think it'll be better for me to eat this in the bedroom. Bring it to me there. And when she takes the meal to him, he forces himself on her. And while that's happening, she's pleading with him, don't do this. This is crazy. I'll be shamed for the rest of my life. I'm not going to keep this a big secret. You're ruining my life, and you're going to be known as a fool in the whole country of Israel. But he persists. He forces her. And then after they have had a sexual relationship, right afterwards, the very next thing that happens is he's sick of her. He's disgusted by her. Maybe because she put up such a fight, I don't know. But he then kicks her out of his house. And she goes public. She is grieving. She no longer wears the, the certain 
dress that a, a virgin daughter of the king would wear, and she's got dust on her head, and it's a scandal. It blows up. And David does nothing. As much as Amnon loved her before he did that, he hated her even more than he loved her afterwards. And David knows all about it, and David does nothing. He's angry, he's outraged, but he takes no action. He doesn't do anything. And, and I think a lot of this is because he has this kind of sin in his own life. And so he, he's, he's kind of wrestling with all this. And here's the problem for us parents. You know, the things that we do, the gray areas, the little sins that we tolerate in our life, when our children see that, typically they will take those same sins and take them further than we did. Because we're like, hey, this is limited. This is kind of contained. But our kids grow up going, oh, this is normal. And then they go a step further. And we're like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Well, you do this. Yeah, but I'm just, no, same thing. And that's what we see playing out in David's life. So David doesn't do anything, but Tamar has a full-blood brother named Absalom. And Absalom, he is outraged by the injustice of David's inaction. He doesn't like it. He's mad. So he takes Tamar into his own home to care for her because she didn't have a lot of options in that culture in that day. And then he plans revenge. He waits two full years. After two years, he goes to David and says, hey, my sheep herders are having a big celebration. It's sheep shearing time. We all know what that means, right? Right? You know, party time. It's a celebration. What happens during sheep shearing stays, you know, you know what I'm saying. It's all that. And so he says, hey, David, you know, why don't you come, Dad? And he knows David's not coming because he'd have to come with all his officials. And David's, David declines. And then he says, well, at least let Absalom and my brothers come. I'm, I'm sorry, Amnon and my brothers. This is Absalom. Let Amnon and my brothers come to, come to the celebration. David says, okay. And so they all go to the celebration, which is outside Jerusalem, and then Absalom kills Amnon, murders him during the festivities. The other brothers, they hop, hop on their mules, and they are riding for Jerusalem as fast as they can because they don't know if they're going to be next. And that all plays out. And then David mourns the death of his firstborn son. By the way, Absalom is number two for the throne. So we're wondering if there's motives might be a little mixed here. When David hears, he mourns Amnon. But he takes no action against Absalom. In the meantime, Absalom has taken off out of the country. He has fled to Gersher, which is actually the Golan Heights that we hear about in the news all the time. And he's there, and actually the king there is sort of his grandfather through his mother, and so he's got a place to stay. David doesn't punish Absalom, doesn't take any action, doesn't go for him. And here's, here's what's happening. Here's what's playing out. Because it happens today too. David probably felt that he lost his moral authority to discipline his kids. Amnon, you raped your half-sister. Okay, well, you're going to punish him when you forced yourself on Bathsheba, and everybody knows it. 
Absalom, you killed your brother. What's he going to do when everybody knows he killed Uriah? One of his mighty men, somebody who's loyal to him for 30 years. And, and the same thing can happen to us today. As parents, we can do wrong things, and when that becomes known and public, we sort of lose our moral authority, and we don't parent as strong in those areas. I got to tell you, we got to get over that. Because our kids need parenting. They need a strong moral authority in their life to point right and wrong. So if you're in that position, and hopefully you're not, but where you've lost your moral authority in some area and your kids know it, and so you're feeling really awkward or hypocritical to speak into that part of their life or discipline them, here's what you need to do. You need to gather the kids around if they already know. Gather the kids around and say, hey, this happened. I did this and I'm guilty. I'm guilty, I've, con I've admitted it, I've repented of it, I will never do that again and I haven't done that since. But even though I did that, just know you can't do that. I will not allow you to do that and I will punish you for doing it because I want you to be better than me. I cannot allow this to come into your life because it was in my life. Because I'm going to do for you what somebody didn't do for me and correct that. Does that make sense? We've got to climb back on even if we feel we've lost our moral authority. But the way we get it back is through admission, confession, and repentance. And that our kids can see that we've repented. Oh yeah, my parent would never do that now. After three years away in the Golan Heights, finally, through Joab's manipulations behind the scenes, David allows Absalom to return back to Jerusalem. It's been three years. But when he gets back in Jerusalem, David won't see him. He's there in Jerusalem, but David won't see him face to face. And after two years of that, now it's been five years, finally, Absalom can't take it anymore. He's like, kill me, do whatever, but I want to see the king. And so through Joab again, he has an audience with David. They actually reconcile, and they're sort of good now. And so you think right there, hey, family problems have been worked out, dysfunction at a minimum, but just the opposite happens. Absalom, now that he's welcomed and seen by the king in Jerusalem, he starts acting like the next in line, which he is. So he hires like 50 bodyguards that go everywhere with him in Jerusalem. He gets a chariot and he rides that through Jerusalem and he starts acting like a king. And then not only that, he starts greeting people at the city gate, people who sometimes are on their way to get justice from King David in the palace as he's acting as supreme judge. Well, he would meet them at the city gates, greet them. Hey, what you here for? Oh, I'm... We, you know, I have a dispute with my neighbor. We're going to go talk to David. Hey, well, if I was king, you'd be good to go. If I was king, I would be on your side. And he does this, and he starts winning the hearts of the people to Absalom more than they are for David. And so that keeps playing out. And then we see his conspiracy. He finally takes 200 officials. He tells David, hey, I've got to go make a sacrifice to God in Hebron. Hebron's, remember, where David was first anointed king. He says, hey, I've got to take, I'm going to go make a sacrifice. And so he goes, but he takes like 200 officials out of Jerusalem. 
These guys don't really know what's going on. But what he's doing is he's weakening what David has left in Jerusalem. So he takes 200 officials, but he has spies and a bunch of followers and people want him over David. And he tells these spies to go through all all Israel and hey, when the trumpet blasts, I've been anointed king in Hebrew. Tell everybody, celebrate, that's the way it is. And that happens. In the meantime, David's in Jerusalem and he hears about it. And so he knows he's got to get out of there because Absalom's got a bunch of people and they're getting ready to march on Jerusalem. So he takes off with the people who are most loyal to him, which includes the 600 men that have been with him this whole time, which would have included Uriah if he wasn't dead. And he takes his his wives, his family, and and again, uh, two priests come with him, Abiathar and Zadok, and they come and they bring the ark. And David says, hey, you two priests, take the ark back to Jerusalem. No use putting the ark through all this. And then you guys stay in Jerusalem and be spies for me to tell me what Absalom's planning. And so they do that. And then David has this key, super smart advisor, a friend of his named Hushai, and he tells Hushai, Hushai's with him, he says, no, I need you to go back to Jerusalem, and I need you to offer to give counsel to Absalom. And when you do, mess up the good counselor of my other counselor who's with Absalom. And so Hushai does that. Hushai ends up buying time for David to get away and his household and his men to cross the Jordan River, which creates a barrier, which buys a little more time for them to organize themselves. They go into a walled city there, get organized. In the meantime, Absalom marches into Jerusalem and David had left 10 concubines there. Again, these are the not most favorite wives. But anyway, wives, he left, and he left them to watch the house. He took his favorite wives, left the concubines, But then Absalom's men set a tent up on the rooftop of the palace, the very place where David was spying on Bathsheba, and they go up there, set up a tent, and then Absalom publicly goes into this tent and sleeps with all 10 of David's wives, concubines that were left in Jerusalem. And he does that so everybody that's with him knows, oh, well, he can't fix this anymore. You know, he's saying he's king. In the meantime, then they march on David. David's forces have been able to organize a little bit. They meet for battle. When they do fight, Absalom ends up killed by Joab. David's in this walled city. They ask him not to go into the battle, so he stayed. When he gets news, he finds out Absalom is dead, and he starts grieving publicly in front of everybody. All these people are in fear for their life. But the enemy dies and David starts grieving. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, if it would have only been me who died instead of you. And the whole city's going, whoa. And the army that would normally come back celebrating comes back in shame because of the grief of the king. And then Joab catches up to David. And Joab's, what are you doing? You are teaching everybody, every loyal follower you have, that you have more sympathy for your enemy than you do for them. You like your enemy who wants to kill you more than you care for them. And he kind of snaps David out of it, and David goes out and celebrates with his army. And things kind of stabilize. But that's not the end of the bloodshed in his family, because the next thing, well, we'll talk about that next Sunday. Here's the point today. Here's the deal. 
hear David's heart. Hey, you get sideways with God. You sin against him. You've sinned so much or so habitually or so grossly that you're going, God, where am I with you? I want you to hear David's heart, a man after God's own heart. Out of Psalm 51, this is a song that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba when he was confronted by Nathan. And I'm just going to read select verses out of the psalm. The whole psalm is tremendous. But for time, just a few of the verses. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, David says, and cleanse me from my sin. He's talking to God. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop is just kind of a, a, a plant that they sprinkle things with. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then all teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, we can be followers of Christ. We can even be a person after God's own heart and still sin. The difference is how you move forward after that sin, how you respond after that sin. And here's what God is always wanting us to do, just what David did. After our sin, that we would humble ourselves. We would admit our sin. And we would turn to follow God more closely. That's what God wants for all of us. And when we turn to follow him more closely, and we actively follow God in our life, not just like God sprinkled into our life. No, our life has a trajectory of following God actively, intentionally with our life, with the decisions we make. And when we do that, then other people who know us, we will impact them and make a difference in their lives and that will cause them to know more about God and maybe follow him. That's what God wants for us. Let's stand together and pray. We're going to have the, the team come out and close us in a song. And really, I want that song to also serve as a time of invitation. And I'll explain that in a minute. But let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. And God, those of us who are believers, those of us who have placed our trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, that he died for our sins. God, help us to acknowledge the sin in our life. Convict us of sin and help us to humble ourselves, to admit it, and turn to follow you. Lord, help us to do that. And Father, for those, our friends and neighbors who are here with us, who don't have a relationship with you, Father, we pray that they would understand your love for them and your provision through Jesus that they would be able to humble themselves, admit their sin, and turn to you to follow you. Lord, help us.
to take action on what we hear from your word. In Christ's name, amen.